0: Nature moves in cycles, markets are no different. Today's guest is a widely respected market cycle analyst who believes that we are in the late stage of one of the longest secular bull markets in history. It's been a relatively tranquil era where it's been pretty easy for investors to make money without much effort. And it has lasted so long that few people remember what a true secular bear market feels like the losses the unpredictability the fears and dashed hopes what can we expect if the market indeed turns from bull to bear soon keep watching
1: it is hard to imagine that that, in, that this current cyclical bull turns into a secular bull that endures for another 5 or 10 or 20 years okay but realistically we're more likely based upon the the, the experience of history to see uh, a shift in the in Uh, either a reversion in valuation to more normal levels or a shift in inflation, in my opinion, that would cause uh, the valuation levels to decline. And that would clearly set off a secular bear market that could last five or 10 or 20 years.
0: Hello, and welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder, Adam Taggart, welcoming you back for another week of making sense of money and the markets. I'm very excited to welcome today's guest expert, who's the founder and president of Cresmont Holdings, an Oregon-based investment management and research firm that publishes highly regarded research on the financial markets. He's also the author of two books on investing, Probable Outcomes and Unexpected Returns, Understanding Secular Market Cycles. And finding out where we are in the current cycle is a big reason why I've asked him to join us today. I'm pleased to welcome Ed Easterling to the program. Ed, thanks so much for taking away the time from your charts to join us today. Thanks, Adam. Glad to be here. Thanks. Well, um, let's get started with a question I like to ask all of our guests before introducing any potential biases of mine. What is your current assessment of today's economy and the
1: financial markets? So I think uh, kind of two words I'd offer up for the economy, or one word for the economy right now is dislocation. Uh, I think right now the creates a big vulnerability for the economy that uh, we have a series of factors, whether it's uh, inflation risk, uh, employment, um, the significant transfer of capital uh, into consumption, lots of things going on that I think we're seeing reflected in, in economic numbers that create uncertainty. So if anything, that dislocation creates a vulnerability. Uh, in terms of, I think vulnerability is probably a better word for the stock market uh, and the financial markets overall. Um, a, a lot of those factors, especially the inflation factor, the uncertainty about that creates a significant risk when we have significantly elevated valuations in, in most markets, whether it's the stock market or the bond market, valuations are high um, and valuations are at risk when there is a change in, uh, in that uh, inflation rate and in the discount rate that affects value. All
0: right. Um, I, I want to ask you you know, where you think future values may be headed uh, later on in this conversation. But first... Um, I just want to start because you're really in the business of forecasting, and um, you've stated that forecasting returns over the long period, say like 10 years, um, can be done so pretty reliably, but that it's much, much harder in short periods. Uh, I think the word you might have even used is it's a crapshoot, you know, when when you get to to short-term timeframes. Um, Can you just explain why the short term is so much harder?
1: Well, and you bring up a good point. And just keep in mind that I come at this as a, as a market climatologist, not as a market weather forecaster. So uh, it is with a longer-term horizon, longer-term view. Now, I, I got to tell you, it'd be hard to predict things in the shorter term. Markets, economy, lots of things that we're talking about today are very relatively random in the short run. Um, but over multiple short-run cycles, they're ultimately driven back by the factors that drive value. Uh, value in that is the growth in the cash flows, whether it's stocks or the production of cash flows in terms of bonds or other financial assets. And the way we value those assets, which effectively is the the discount rate or whatever you want to call it, uh, which is the inflation rate. Uh, That inflation rate is the driver of whether uh, as inflation goes up, for example, that would cause the uh, investors to require a greater return from bonds. The way you get that is you drive the bond price down. Anybody who has a bond portfolio that's gone through a period of inflation, or even risk inflation risk, has seen those values hit. S- stocks are no different than bonds in that they're financial assets. The biggest difference is that stocks have an have a um, uh, a variable cash flow, and that's earnings growth. Uh, that earnings growth over the long term, over the short run, it runs on a business cycle, and that's again that highly volatile, uncertain, random cycle. Uh, but over the longer term, that it's just tough for that uh, earnings growth rate to outrun or, or, or underperform the overall economic growth rate. Over the long term, those tend to be very closely related, uh, earnings growth and economic growth. And frankly, Adam, that shouldn't be a, a surprise to most folks because we know the economy, economic growth, GDP, is the sales of all companies. We talk about earnings, that's the proxy of public companies, but we're talking about profits versus sales. And over the long term, profit margin goes up and down, but it stays relatively constant. So the reason it's easy to predict things over the longer term is because it falls back to fundamental factors. Over the short run, there are lots of interim cycles that uh, that create a lot of noise, much like right. you see with tree growth or cattle weight gain or, or other factors.
0: Okay. Well, well that, that, that's a great explanation. And, and, and I asked it because um, you know, you, you used the term sort of dislocation earlier when you were talking about the economy. Um, we've had a lot of um, policy intervention over the past year, you know, these trillions and trillions of dollars in monetary and fiscal stimulus. And I'm just curious, is that making it easy or easier or harder to see where the puck is heading from your standpoint?
1: Um, well, from my standpoint, I think uh, with, again, a long-term view, uh, those things create a lot of noise in the short run, and that's why uh, I think it, that's, the, that's the vulnerability. Um, it, so it makes it much, it makes it harder in the sense that some of these things are so significant, so massive um, that, and, you know, if we just stop here, um, it, it uh, you know, maybe we can digest it. The concern is if we continue with all the things on the table that are proposed, that's, a, that's just a major transfer of capital. It's either one of two things. It's a major transfer of capital into consumption And not that it isn't good for lifestyle and it doesn't help a lot of folks, it's just not clear that a lot of that or most of that spending creates productivity in the future. Improved lifestyle, but not necessarily productivity. And ultimately productivity is what creates value. Um, It creates the value that can pay higher wages. Uh, Otherwise, we're paying for it with inflation. And if we pay for it with inflation instead of paying for it with, with, with capital, then, uh, well, we know that cycle. That that basically takes away a lot of the value of savings that uh, people have worked really hard to uh, to put away over time.
0: Um, all right, great. So we're really, I think, poised here to get in the meat of what I wanted to talk to you about today. Um, yeah. uh, real quick, though, before we do, just because you you mentioned it earlier, um, you mentioned the um, the discount rate, which for folks who don't know what that is, um, it, it's really. Um, uh, the amount that your investors uh, demand for taking on uh, risk. Um, and uh, when um, uh, the, the, the discount rate is higher, uh, it's sort of like a seesaw relationship with the price. The higher the discount rate, the lower the, the, the price um, for any given bond or, or stock or whatnot. Um, and uh, we'll get into this a little bit later, Ed, but um, right now we're, we're, we're seeing um, you know, a, a surge in inflation, right, which, which should lead to a higher discount rate. Um, but it seems like the markets, both the stock and bond markets, have not gotten that memo yet. So I'm curious to, to hear your thoughts about um, the, the, the current delta that we're seeing between today's still highly elevated, in many cases, record high prices, and yet this this outlook that, that rates may be, uh, the discount rates may be rising from here. Um, but let's use that point as a segue into, um, you know, so you were talking about some of these ratios, price, sales, et cetera. Um, can you discuss the historical relationship between uh, PEs? Um, uh, I know that's something that you track a lot and we are sitting here at, at I don't know if they're all-time high PE ratios, but they're close, right? Um, and then, uh, then we can maybe get into inflation, um, et cetera. But I, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested to basically see, because you're a cycles guy, you know, where do you see us? Do you see us, you know, mid-cycle, at the end of a cycle, at the start of a new cycle? Um, wh- what is your cyclical work telling us here?
1: So um, let's unpack that and hit a couple of concepts at the same time. And, and I think um, uh, you talk about you talk about the inflation rate. Um, uh, so I think one key in, matter of fact, rather than talking about discount rates, because it gets kind of geeky to get down into yeah, statistics. exactly. Into, Okay, let's call it the trade-off rate. Um, You see at the end of the day, if inflation's rising, for example, and this i will tie this back into PE, your your question. If inflation is rising, then investors have a choice. They can invest in real assets that are growing at a rate of inflation, essentially in the value of those, or they can invest in financial assets. If the inflation rate is going up and the uh, commodities and real assets are going up commensurately, Then if the financial assets aren't providing a comparable return, then investors will will target their money over in the other direction. So the trade-off is that financial assets have to adjust their value, like bonds prices going down that causes their yield to go up. Or in the case of new bonds, new bonds have to be issued at a higher yield to meet that trade-off. So I like to think of it as trade-offs as opposed to the geeky discount rates, although I've got to tell you, it's a lot of fun talking geeky discount rates from time to time. So. So let's look at this relationship. So what? So right now, one of the dislocations you've just identified, Adam, is we have this potential for higher and higher inflation rate. Yet if you look at the bond market, and we know the Fed controls and sets rates in the short run, but they don't in the long run. And so the confusing part is why we're not seeing more response in the long end of the yield curve, the longer term interest rates, those out at 10 and 20 and 30 years. So that, that creates a bit of a, of a conundrum. At the same time, we have stock market valuations ultra high. Um, if uh, those two markets are sending the same signal, and that is that maybe inflation is not the risk that we, in the short term, perceive it to be. Right. They're, um, they're believing the Fed when the Fed says this, this is transitory. Absolutely. Um, and, and frankly, you know, today's number came out. Uh, they, they said CPI up 5% year over year. Well, we got to be careful because there's a base period uh, factor there. And that is that it's year over year being last year at this time when we had a significant um, suppression of values in the economy. Uh, So I went back and I prefer to look at the, call it the pre-COVID, the 18 month number, or if you wanna keep the months lined up for seasonality, et cetera, let's do the two year number. Um, Those are elevating slightly um, from around 2% plus or minus to around 3% plus or minus. Um, So there is some increase and we're seeing some of the factors that were in today's number are potentially transitory, whether it's used trucks or or uh, airline fees and uh, rates, et cetera. But at the same time, I think there are two factors that drive psychology that drive inflation rate. One is psychology. The second are these underlying financial issues uh, and monetary issues. Um, I, right now, it sure seems like from folks that I talk to in the financial markets and on the street, um, the word inflation is coming up a lot. So I would, uh, I'd be concerned uh, if I were the Fed about the psychology building in that can create its own reinforcing cycle. But for, in the short run, I think it looks like markets are solid. And uh, if anything, they seem to be a little bit euphoric. Um,
0: All right. Um, well, I wanna ask you about that too in just a minute, but, but okay. uh, just to sort of uh, bring the question up again, you, you look at grand cycles in the markets um wh- where do you see us right now what wh- what type of cycle and where in the cycle are we in your estimation
1: okay so and and um and I, I study closely secular stock market cycles the term secular comes from a latin term secular that means an era or an extended period of time so what we're talking about is extended periods five, 10, 20 year periods Our investor horizons as opposed to traders horizons um on that horizon uh where are we in the cycle the the cycle that has occurred numerous times over the last century or longer has been a cycle in the inflation rate that drives a cycle in valuation. We've seen periods where the price earnings ratio goes up and then as the, then the inflation rate uh, peaks at a low stable rate. If the inflation rate then starts rising again, that drives PE valuations down. Falling PEs have a substantial impact on the return from stocks over shorter term periods, five, 10, 20 years. Um, If we hit periods of deflation, for example, um, deflation is a period of declining um, real prices. So in that case, real earnings would move from a slight increase to a decline. And the value of something that's going down is less than the value of something going up over time. So deflation causes PE ratios to go down because we're, we have a future of de- perpetually declining the, uh, uh, earnings. Um, rising inflation, although it causes earnings to go up faster, according to inflation, it doesn't, it's just not enough to keep the disruptions that are caused by def- infl- inflation uh, are a harm to ultimate um, margins. So although the rate of nominal growth in earnings may increase, that trade-off value, the effect of that trade-off of those real assets going up causes you to discount those bonds or or reduce the value of bonds and stocks that more than offsets. And that's the reason PE goes down. So PE ratios peak at low stable inflation and they decline as they move away from low stable inflation. So higher inflation is bad and deflation is bad, but low stable inflation is good for stocks. And so where are we in the secular stock market cycle? Well, we're at relatively high valuations and we have been at relatively low stable PE ratios. So um, low stable um, rate inflation. Low, low stable. Thank you. Low stable rate of inflation. So when in, uh, so that would put us in the um, either the late stage of a um, of a of a strong rising valuation period that has added to returns, or we're nearing the beginning uh, of a of a period of of uh, of a secular period of of below average uh, to to a very below average stock market returns. So essentially, where are we in the cycle? We, Because of high valuations, um, what it means is if you look at whether it's 10 years, 20 years, or 30 years, we're unlikely to have a substantial increase in returns due to rising PEs because PEs are so high today. So that leaves future returns based on dividend yield and earnings growth. And as a testament to the high valuation, I think one of the best indicators, one of the, the kind of the, the uh, un... Um, Uh, underappreciated indicators of valuation is the dividend yield. Look how low, because dividend yield is essentially earnings yield turned upside down is, is, is based on the earnings yield. And right now that's an, right now that's an extremely low number, which is indicative of a very high valuation. So dividend yield is a reinforcer of our understanding that valuations are really high. They're not just distorted by some um, uh, short-term factor, but instead they're, they're uh, uh, actually um, uh, supported by, 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 uh, other indicators in the marketplace. So I, I think we're we're set for a we're long term we're set for below average returns. Short term, uh, hard to say. We're still back, yeah,
0: still back to the crapshoot in the short term. But um, well, very good explanation. Thank you. Okay. It corroborates data that we've looked at from uh, other peers of yours, like John Hussman. Um, he produces a lot of charts that right now are predicting, I think, a negative uh return for investors over the next 10 years and for many of the same reasons that you're mentioning right valuations are just so high today uh it seems you know it's hard for to imagine pe ratios going much higher over
1: the next decade because they're already so stretched right right now. And some, and some of john's numbers are, are really helpful for folks because he you know he is he assumes that inflation goes back to average and therefore valuation goes back to average and um And let's see, let me take a different, he assumes that he assumes valuation goes back to average, he doesn't assume anything about inflation, because his focus on PE ratios is more the PE cycle, more so than it being driven by inflation. So I just don't want to put words in John's mouth.
0: No, 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 that's true. But I, I, and correct me if this interpretation is wrong, but I think that means that if the inflation story worsens, John's predictions are going to get even
1: worse for investors. Absolutely. And, And so, matter of fact, so I think, I think John, matter of fact, interestingly, John and I come at this from two different angles. But have in some ways, um, uh, if we see the cycle continue and we go back to average, if not below average PE, then it pretends the kind of outlook that John offers up. So, right, it's- and, and John's
0: outlook is, is a nominal uh, you know, zero or negative r- return for users on a real basis. You know, if inflation worsens from here, again, it just gets even worse, right? Um, but I, I love this when we have smart people who use different approaches, but come to similar conclusions, because that, for we as the viewing audience here, that gives us a sense of greater confidence that we can kind of lean into those conclusions, because different approaches are coming to the same answer. Yeah. Um, All right. Okay. So um, just to sum what you've said here, and please correct me if I'm wrong, you are saying from your understanding of um, historical cycles, you're seeing all the hallmarks of a very late stage end to what I'm going to call a, a secular bull market. You can tell me if you want to call it something different. Um, that, that We're either at the tail end of a secular bull market or potentially already starting the very beginnings of maybe a secular bear market. Um, is, it, is that accurate? Are those accurate words to put in your mouth?
1: The only one I would tweak is I think that what we're in right now, um, we can we can Save for a, a different time, whether we're in a secular bull or secular bear, I think what's important is we're definitely in a cyclical bull. Okay. And yeah. so we're either in a late stage cyclical bull, um, well, we are in late. We're we well. Let's see. It, um, uh, it is hard to imagine that that in, that this current cyclical bull turns into a secular bull that endures for f- another five or ten or twenty years. Okay. But realistically, we're more likely, based upon the 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 experience of history, to see uh, a shift in the in uh, either a reversion in valuation to more normal levels, or a shift in inflation, in my opinion, that would cause uh, the valuation levels to decline, and that would clearly set off a secular bear market that could last five or ten or twenty years. Um, okay,
0: great. Uh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna try to put words in your mouth one more time. Oh, please Sounds like me. you're saying, uh, I, I, and we haven't said this specifically yet. So correct me if it's wrong, but I think we have been in a secular bull market we are now within a cyclical bull market within that secular bull. Um, that you see is likely ending. And the question is, Is are we just gonna go into a cyclical bear market still inside of a secular bull, or are we gonna start a secular bear market coming
1: out of here? Does that make sense? So let's see. I And so uh, I think the key is that secular periods are made up of numerous cyclical periods. Um, and so, uh, yes, I think, uh, I would, uh, um, I won't disagree with what you just said. I think what I would, the, the message that I would sum up and leave for the, uh, for the, for the listeners uh, is um, um, uh, that valuations are high. So the relevance is valuations are high. High valuations lead to low, low average returns. Very high valuations lead to, rel- over the longer term period, so short-term, random, can't predict it, but over the investor horizons, those 10-year, 20-year periods that are, that are relevant to people accumulating or, or realizing income off a of distribution, whether you're a young or an older, we're in an environment, and to me, that's the most important part about secular period. We're in a secular high valuation period. Secular high valuation means we're destined for, to below average returns. Okay great, so and, and, um, and it doesn't matter how long you wait. it doesn't matter whether you wait a hundred years if you start if you start paying a really high price, you can't end up with above average returns because there are only three components to return from the stock market: earnings growth, dividend yield, and the change in p e mm-hmm. and the change in p e over a hundred year period doesn't make a big difference, but over ten and twenty year periods makes a huge difference. so when you start high, okay, you got Maybe a little more you can go, but Icarus is up pretty, uh, you know, I- Icarus is getting pretty close to the sun right now. Matter of yep. fact, he's probably past the threshold level. Um, and at some point we're, we're going to see a reversion um, if history is if, if our guide. And I think that's where, um, what I try to do is take the, the principles that we're discussing, these principles of valuation, principles of volatility, for example, and look at the laboratory of history and make sure that those principles have actually um, uh, played out in historical context consistently and they have
0: all right and okay so now we're going i want to get into sort of where do you see things headed from here um you've already said look lower right um i guess one question is is and and i'm asking you to put on your your um meteorologist hat versus your climatologist hat and i know you're yeah. a climatologist by trade but um uh, I guess how concerned are you the, uh, of of the risk that that we could bleed that excess out pretty quickly, um, you know, in in a major market correction versus just sort of a slow decline over the next decade or two?
1: Uh, history's it, a guide,
0: it, it, and, and, and I'll, let me let me tell you, what I'm asking the question because we have a lot of people who are watching this saying, "Look, I share the concerns that 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 Ed is doing a great job of articulating here." Um, I might even be sitting on the sidelines in, in, in some cash now, and it hurts because I get no yield on it. And while we're in this period, at least in the short term of rising inflation, I'm just watching the purchasing power that get eroded. And it feels feels really bad. And I'm, I'm watching people who are just aren't thinking and are along the market, just still making money like crazy here. Um, but I don't want to be that guy who jumps in at the late stage only to have you know everything unwind right after I put all my money in there. And so I, I, people are trying to figure out, is now a time to really build and hold tight to dry capital? Or could this, this last long enough that they need to con, might need to consider alternative strategies to try to you know, get some sort of
1: return on their savings? So I'd like to refer to as the boatsman's analogy of rowing versus sailing. Uh, and certainly someone, if, they, if they're more comfortable, can, can exit to the side and dry dock for a period of time in such an uncertain period. Um, but uh, the rowing versus sailing analogy suggests that when we're in a period of rising valuations, when you have the wind at your back, much like we were in the 80s and 90s, um, inflation is being tamed under control. In that case, you have um, uh, a strategy of investing uh, on a buy and hold basis in the stock market, at the, wind in, the wind, kind of the wind in your sail. But when we're in periods of high valuation, of high uncertainty, that's a good time to pull the oars out and row. And what that means is an increased level of diversification, The use of tools and techniques that can lower downside risk while still participating somewhat in the upside. I think the key here is to recognize that if if you do believe that over time we're we're set for a period above average and then below average returns in the short run that leave us with longer term below average, the trade-off for your portfolio um, uh, is that you would look not now trying to get these double-digit returns but instead be comfortable chipping away with some nice mid-single-digit returns um, in the meantime. And it's certainly not available in in bonds, uh, not on a risk-adjusted basis, but there are lots of investments that that could be put in a portfolio to diversify and still get a a decent return uh, exceeding the rate of inflation. All right, and I'm just curious, when you say lots of investments, and and
0: let me caveat that none of this is personal financial advice, Um, you should be reviewing any information that you take from this video, that you wanna take action on with your professional financial advisor. But with that caveat, Ed, um, what are some, you know you think, good potential uh, asset classes to at least investigate and consider if
1: folks are looking to you know hit some of those singles that you're talking about in this environment? Well, you've asked the question that was the biggest criticism on unexpected returns. Uh, and that is that I described the principles, I described the concepts in investment philosophy, uh, but I don't give any examples uh, because that's not my expertise. Um, what I would do is I would defer to, and, and, the, and I, I talk to numerous financial advisors all the time. Um, they have lots of different ideas that they're using. Uh, I recommend individuals either consult their financial advisor or on their own to research all the alternatives that are available today. Um, but unfortunately, Adam, I I um, uh, I'll be as consistent now as I was in 2004 when I wrote Unexpected Returns. I, I just don't have uh, specific examples of, of things that you can put in a portfolio. Uh, There are certain some asset classes and and techniques that you can use, Um, but again, I I would defer to, um, to, to, uh, you know, there's a whole lot of different ways to row. Uh, all right but, we, but we've got to. a we've got a financial advisor
0: who is a devoted follower of your work uh coming on this video after we talk with you so we'll put oh, come some on. of those questions to him so 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 you've
1: you, you got that part covered then that's great yeah
0: not, not, not to worry um but, but let, let me maybe try to ask the question again differently but maybe in a way that, that you can answer from your your high level perch um sure. which is uh you know for people that are concerned about the You know the the very high-level records evaluation right now in almost every asset class. Um, uh, I I guess their question is: is um, uh, you know even if they're trying to go for singles per se, um, how do you avoid being guilty of trying to pick up nickels in front of the steamroller here? Because I think that's what people's biggest concern is: is they they don't want to become collateral damage. Um, if there is a substantial market correction that happens in a short period of time, they don't want to be too exposed on the long side. Um, so I'm curious to hear any feedback that you might have, you know for somebody who's wrestling with those challenges and and maybe a, a sister question, which is, um, you know, in uh, what do you think about defensive strategies like um, using uh, tools that can, you know they might, uh, Cap your your maximum gains, but they provide some insurance on the downside. So these are these are basically
1: hedging techniques, is what I'm talking about. Do you favor those in a market environment like this? Absolutely, and that's one. It that is one concept that I do include. in Unexpected returns is is the is the, the there's various techniques that can be used to um, you give up some of the upside to reduce the downside, or you give up some of the upside to generate current return. Um, and so I guess if anything, you know, in, in unexpected returns, I talk about when the concept of rowing is a 10 bucket approach. And it doesn't mean that everybody has to have exactly 10 equally weighted buckets in their portfolio, but the key concept would be to make sure that you're diversifying risk, not just diversifying assets. Yeah, that's a great point. That is a great and point. Th- there were people back in the 1970s, back, when, back in the old days when it was really simple, you just buy stocks and bonds and maybe a little cash or gold, um, that thought that stocks and bonds, which in the short run, On days when the stock market goes up, the bond market often goes down and vice versa. So if you use daily data, you get a very, uh, again, inverted correlation between stocks and bonds. They look like they diversify. But remember, I'm the market climatologist that says, wait a minute, that's that's irrelevant. What's relevant is what happens to your portfolio over 10 years. Well, the great lesson was when inflation is rising, it hurts bonds and stocks. So you didn't find much comfort in diversification with having a stock and bond portfolio in 1970s. So they diversified assets, but they didn't diversify risk. Likewise, but but the good news was uh, in the 1980s, that all turned around. So if you hold those two assets, bonds did great and stocks did great. Um, but in today's environment where valuations are high, this is a great time to make sure you're diversifying risk, not just diversifying assets. Great, great point. And, and just to use your
0: comparison there of stocks and bonds, w- we are coming off of a prolonged period where the prices of both have risen to, in many cases, all-time highs, right? So they're, they're both highly elevated right now. Um, do you see there being um, concerning probability that uh, if we do have this shift, this cyclical shift, that both will go down uh, together as well? So you could be diversified across both of those asset classes, but your, your risk wouldn't be
1: diversified and be riding both down. So, um... So when we look at the scenarios and right now there's a real good case to make that we're in a period of rising inflation. And if that's the case, then both of those are vulnerable. Yep. There's also a very good case to make that we could be set for a period of deflation. That, that this, all this de- dislocation ends up with uh, an economic disruption. That economic disruption could, could lead to disinflation or deflation. Now deflation is bad for stocks, but it's good for bonds because bonds don't have that variable coupon. They have a fixed coupon. And so that fixed amount of money into the future is worth even more in a period of low or negative inflation. So if we see that scenario, those two would be diversifying, but in an inflationary scenario, they would not be. And again, there's always a chance that we, you know, find Goldilocks here and, Uh, And for some reason, we kind of set things right back to where they were, and then we could be in a period of low stable inflation again for an extended period. If that's the case, it still isn't the justification to get valuations, to sustain valuations where they are or take them even higher. So I think they are vulnerable to a correction to a more normal high level, just not ultra high. Um, but, But we need not necessarily think that they would revert back to the average.
0: Good point, good point. Um, one last question on this. Um, so if we do see deflation, and uh, we just had our on's first uh, conference this past weekend, and Lacey Hunt actually made a phenomenal case, very, very data heavy, uh, that uh, unless key elements of the status quo change dramatically, he actually thinks that deflation will win the day here. But if we did go down a deflationary um, path, um, do you, Could you see rates in the us. going negative, or do you think we'll we'll have a
1: zero floor? Um, I think it's unlikely that, that rates would stay negative for, any, for an extended period of time. Uh, again that's, a, that's that's a dislocation. that's a that's an un, uh, an unnormal condition that creates its own series of of uh, vulnerabilities. So could it happen in the short run? Yes, but do I, I don't think we would have a, a secular period of of and, and so this, just to clarify a um, whole lot can happen in the short end of the curve. I, I'm not sure if you're talking about the, the longer term interest rates, which are really the factor that drive stock returns. I think it'd be unlikely to have bond yields go negative significantly for an extended period of time. Um, we, but I think we could see, um, I, I, um, could we see a Fed that takes, uh, that, uh, um, takes a series of policies, uh, choices, uh, and extends them for an extended period, uh, for a decade or longer. I, it's it's possible. I mean, we shouldn't put put it past. If they if they get caught up on really prioritizing uh, in, the employment mandate over the inflation control mandate, um, I, you know, I think their role is a monetary role.
0: Okay, and, and sort of where I was going with this question is, um, let's say we go into a, a period of deflation, sustained deflation is bad for stocks, the way that you said, um, it's supportive for bonds. Um, my sort of question was is because where rates are so low today, um, you know, does that sort of put a cap on how far bonds, bonds could rise? Um, you know, are, they, are they sort of close to their price for perfection levels? Um, or potentially could bonds still materially appreciate uh, in a deflationary
1: uh, regime from here, given how low rates are today? Well, that's a, it's a golden goose result. So let's keep in mind that if we hit that period of deflation, uh, if lacy's right, we hit deflation, all of a sudden, we would see a, a surge, so we'd see total return in the short run be very strong in bonds um, but that's a valuation shift. i mean you've harvested the golden goose at that point you're holding on to bonds that have yields that are you know basis points, and any new bond issues are going to be basis points right fractions of fr- fractions of a percent so um, but but the total return over a short period, much like we saw for a very short period last year, you could have you could have very strong short term returns. But um, uh, that's a very undesirable condition. All, uh, it, that, that's a that's a consolation prize for bondholders. But it's not um, it, it's uh, for anybody who's got a bond portfolio that's reasonably diversified in maturity. Um, you don't want those nice bonds that have appreciated significantly to be rolling over into very low interest rates, very low yields.
0: Okay, great, great point to make. Um, yeah, so it's it's almost sort of like it's almost a future you don't want to wish for as a bondholder, right? Right. Yeah. Um, all right. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, great. Well, um, Ed, uh, thank you so much. This is a... Um, you know, it's it's such a difficult time for today's investor to figure out what to do. Um, and uh, you've given us, you know, a, a, a great education here, uh, particularly on the bond side, um, where on past interviews we've had here, we haven't dug into bonds as much as we have with you. So I really appreciate you you helping us do that here because I think most investors don't don't understand the bonds as easily as they do the general stock market. Um, so uh, I guess in wrapping up here. Um, For folks that are impressed by you, want to learn more about you and your work, where should they go to learn more?
1: Um, uh, Online at uh, Crestmontresearch.com. You'll find graphs, articles, um, um, information about uh, uh, both bonds, stocks, and the economy. Uh, The the kind of the main driver of Crestmont Research is to create graphs that tell the message themselves. Uh, uh, So they're, they're colorful graphs, uh, and the intention is either in, either with a few moments of looking at it or with a little bit of time that it gives you an aha, an aha insight um, of, of a key principle. Uh, and then the articles that sort of uh, often uh, relate to those graphs. Uh, also there's a video series uh, that's based on unexpected returns that talks about some of the key principles um, that, uh, that's available uh, free online. Uh, otherwise, uh, unexpected returns, probable outcomes, you mentioned the two books earlier. Uh, would certainly suggest those uh, for most folks. Unexpected returns. The first book is the um, is probably the better place to start uh, in terms of uh, concepts. Uh, and the uh, the book was written with a broad audience uh, in mind, so it's uh, uh, it should satisfy the appetite of financial advisors, and at the same time, it's very relatable by uh, individual investors. And uh, I think the um, uh, one of the uh, often people have asked if I'm going to do an update to the book. Uh, and I think right now, what's proven to be more valuable is to go back and have a book that was written um, uh, 15 years ago, 17 years ago, that is uh, as uh, valuable in its principles as it was then, and has been uh, has been shown to prove the test of time. So I would just uh, encourage folks not to get uh, uh, dissuaded by the, by the date on it. And all of the charts and graphs that are in the book, uh, in both books, are updated on the website, uh, at least annually, and some of them quarterly.
0: All right. Excellent. And having looked at a lot of those charts, they are extremely useful. As, as Ed said, there are many ways that the picture's worth a thousand words. Uh, the data can show you clearly something uh, in a few seconds um, that would otherwise, you'd have to watch a full video like this to understand. So I uh, recommend everybody go there. Thanks so much, Ed. Um, really appreciate your, your work and really to your point there, the timelessness of it, right? So much of of what's driving a lot of in, in investors today is emotion, um, and right now, they're the fear of, of missing out (FOMO) kind of reigns supreme. And what we try to do with these videos by bringing on experts like you is to try to take the emotion component out of it, and really try to arm people with empirical insights. Um, and so, you know, the fact that your book is just uh, the tenets of it apply just as much today as they they did back when it was originally written. You know, having those type of frameworks are incredibly valuable to help people make emotion less uh, decisions today and hopefully smarter as a resu- smarter decisions as a result. So Ed, I can't thank you enough. Thank you so much for coming on. Really look forward to having you on the program at some point again in the
1: future. Look forward to it. Thanks Adam and all the best. All right. All right,
0: John. Well, Ed Easterling, I know you, you and Mike at new Harbor um, have been longtime followers of, of Ed's work. Um, I'd love to hear your reaction to what Ed said, but maybe real quick, if you can just give kind of a quick little background as to how you guys got exposed to Ed's work and, and why you follow it so closely.
2: Yeah, well, we, we've known about Ed and his work for a long time, um, not by accident, because we do also um, focus on data and, and live in the data as, as, as a locus point as to where we are and likely are in market cycles. Um, most folks who in, are in that realm kind of know of Ed's work. He's, he's a he's a really... Um, balanced, unemotional observer of the data, which is great. um, That's what you want in a data analyst. Um, And he has a very good ability to kind of parse through tons of data over literally a century or or more in some cases and really extract the key learnings from it. And um, as was kind of alluded to in in his comments, some of his charts are are works of art, literally. I mean, (laughs) they are very effective um, chart tools that can can, uh, convey messages to even the layperson person that, that doesn't live in this this world of financial analyst uh, analysis um, there's one particular chart that kind of maps with a color coding um, kind of epics if you will epochs uh, I guess is the right word of, of return and, and market cycles and it's a it's a beautiful patchwork of colors um, the green parts are periods of strong returns and the red parts are periods that most people want to Erased from history because they're very painful times, but there it's a very, very illustrative chart that uh, is, a, is a work of art to, 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 to just look at. But uh, yeah, we've, we've been following him for um, you know twenty years at least. Uh, we've got at least one of his books. We look at his, his research all the time um, for, for updates. Um, so glad you were able to have him on as, a, as a, a voice to the data.
0: Yeah, I was super happy to get him. Um, all right, so. Um... Look, as I kind of recap in my mind what what Ed said, he said, um, look, there's been lots of dislocations happening uh, in the economy right now um, that has uh, over, say, recent years, recent decade, um, brought the uh, financial markets to price levels where now he sees a lot of vulnerability. right? Um, Looking at his cyclical work, he says, hey, we're seeing all the hallmarks of a late stage bull cycle here. Um, and uh, looking forward, he felt fairly confident in saying, Hey, who knows what's going to happen tomorrow? But looking five, 10, 15 years out, it really looks like we're going to have lower prices at that point. Right. So that's the big macro trend that, that today's investors need to plan for. Um, I did ask him, you know, if, if he'd sort of take his framework and, and look through that lens at certain asset classes. Sounds like you know, he stays at the very high level, uh, said, hey, you should talk to a financial advisor who understands these frameworks uh, to get an answer like that. So that's who we have in you, right? So um, I'd love to just spend a couple of minutes talking about, um, A, what you got out of, um, what you took away from Ed beyond what I just listed there. Um, B, how you are um, creating, you know, your portfolio strategy at New Harbor to prepare for the type of environment that he sees coming. Uh, and then maybe we can talk a little bit about specific hedging techniques because that sounded like something that Ed was a big fan of.
2: yeah, Adam, I think I think if there was one thing, one of two main things that folks should have taken away from from Ed's comment, and i couldn't I couldn't agree more with what he 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 said he He made the point of it's important to not just diversify assets but to diversify risk. That is. Uh, Very, very profound statement, uh, but simple in in application. And and it's very important because most folks and most traditional investment management firms will have folks in in all market environments in a pie chart of traditional um, stocks and bonds, right? And over many periods of the market cycle, that's a perfectly fine and, and appropriate way to invest. But there are distinct periods in market cycles where That is absolutely um, quite possibly a a horrible way to approach the markets because yeah, while you're diversifying across assets, you are absolutely uh, in some market environments like we think in the one we're in right now, not diversifying across risk. And and, um, just to reiterate by way of illustration, why that is, uh, Ed made the very proper point that let's take two scenarios, inflation versus deflation, two ends of the spectrum, There's certainly credible scenarios for both. But in the inflation spectrum, both stocks and bonds would likely get hit very negatively because of the fact that they're priced at such um, high levels, relatively speaking, now as compared to history. So, you know, a a very diversified pie chart of stocks and bonds is probably the very worst place to be right now uh, in an inflationary uh, potential environment. And that's certainly. The headlines of today certainly up the up the ante a bit I think in terms of a uh, true inflation starting to take hold now in the deflation environment um you know yeah the bonds would, would be a great place to be as would cash uh stocks would would likely get hammered so so here's an example where you know attending to all the risk requires different tools and that very much is a nice segue to how we're per- presently positioned to to attend to f- frankly both of those uh, examples or those scenarios. We, we are, we're holding lots of dry powder in the form of short-term treasury bills and cash and even some long-term treasury bonds, you know, in a very modest That would likely do very well. The cash would do well, certainly in a um, deflationary environment as with the bonds, but also in an inflationary environment. The cash would, would not necessarily be a great adder return, but, but, but it would be a safe haven or a dry powder that could then be used to to rotate into things like stocks and bonds that would likely reprice downward. We're also holding um, things like commodities, precious metal miners and some some bullion for some folks, uh, precious metals, but also uh, much of the stock exposure that we do have as limited as it is, is weighted towards uh, commodities like energy stocks, like emerging markets uh, stocks, which are not only relatively fairly valued or undervalued, but they also have a, tend to have a, an emphasis on resource type stocks, uh, given the economies that they're in. So, so you know, we're, we're attending the, you know, kind of diversifying the risk uh, uh, challenge that it speaks to by holding, you know, a fair amount of, you know, fairly high level of cash and, and safe, safe powder, but also some commodity exposure and the hedges that, um, you know, really trade um, likely increased volatility for um, you know stability and and even some potential uh, positive progress even if the world around us is is in a volatile period
0: great um, and you know we talked about um, that we had the wealthy on uh, conference uh, the other weekend uh, lots of great speakers there and, and John you and Mike were Phenomenal co-host, so thank you for all that. Um, but we heard from a number of the different speakers there that we are moving, um, there's, there's a shift occurring from um, the success of passive investing to where active investing is going to not only you know come back into vogue, but, but really be necessary to navigate the future. Right. When all boats are rising, when a rising tide is rising, all boats. Yeah. Passive investing makes a ton of sense. Right. Um, but moving into the future that many of our guests, including Ed, see coming where you're going to see highly likely that you're going to see lower prices ahead. Um, but you're going to have to sort of navigate the rocky shores of, OK, you know, we know we're going to get to lower, but how are we going to get there? Is it going to be by deflation or inflation or whatnot? Um, it's all about, you um, you know coming up with uh, a portfolio strategy that that can react to those you know on the ground realities um, but also is man is mitigating risk as best as possible and that's where the hedging really comes into play so just to reiterate what we always do on this program Highly recommend that you work with a professional financial advisor to craft that strategy and to deploy it for you. Given all these risks going on, given what a, a really confusing time it is for investors, um, and John, I just you know we're going to end here in a couple seconds. But um, you talk to people all day long, um, many of whom are folks that watch these videos and then want to go talk to you guys. What are you seeing right now, just in the mindset of people? I mean, I've got to think that so many people are so frustrated, confused, um, and probably just exhausted trying to, to make sense of where things are gonna go from here. Um, can you just help us sort of understand you know, what the, the average person who's calling you up is, is dealing with psychologically right now?
2: Yeah, I, absolutely. The, your choice of the word confused. Adam, I think is apropos. And, and, and please, that, that is not meant to me, mean that um, the folks we speak to are not intelligent or bright or observant. Um, one can be smart and intelligent and confused because the environment is is confusing. It's it's very confusing because of all the um, cognitive dissidents and inconsistencies. You know, um, you know, we have inflation numbers picking up here, yet the stock and bond markets are seemingly uh, not giving a whiff. Um, central bankers themselves are are you know kind of. Seemingly not even given these things lip service, you know, repeating the refrain that this is transitory and not to be concerned. Of course, you know, they've got a long history for talking down big problems just by simply saying it's not a worry. Um, you know, so, so it is a very uh, confusing, very um, likely transitional paradigm shifting phase we're in here. And I love um, to get back to Ed Easterling's comments, I love the, the analogy of rowing versus sailing. This is a time, and this gets back to the passive versus active, you know, theme that was touched upon uh, pretty heavily in the WealthyOn conference this past weekend. I, we think um, we're we're entering a period where being a rower, being an active steward of, um, you know, avoiding those rock piles, those those shoals with the boat, versus letting the wind take the sails and putting you right on the shores. Now's the time to be rowers. So folks who are do-it-yourselfers or have a, an investment advisor, um, urge them to you know at least think about being proactive and, and not reactive. Uh, we think they're, we're, we're very much in, on the, the verge of, of needing to you know, have nimbleness and, and react and proactivity rather than reactivity to what's going to uh, likely ensue here.
0: All right. Well, very well put, John. Um, and so folks watching, um, if you don't already know this, John and Mike and the team at New Harbor for wealthy on viewers uh, they will give you a portfolio review uh, there's no strings attached no commitment to work with them, doesn't cost you anything. It's just because they care about getting people well-positioned for what's coming. They want to try to help as many people as possible avoid those rocky shoals that John was just mentioning. Um, So if you haven't scheduled one of those free conversations with the team at New Harbor, uh, stick around at the end of the video. It's coming up in just a second. We tell you how to do that. It only takes you a couple of seconds to set one of those up. Um, All right. And wrapping up real quick, um, if you have if you're enjoying these type of, of interviews with guest experts, want to continue to see more of them. Uh, help us continue to do that by clicking the subscribe button below to this channel as well as the little bell icon next to it. If you want to see which experts are coming up next or suggest one of your own, follow me at at Menlobear on Twitter. I listen to what everybody there uh, requests. Um, and um, you know, as I say every week, John, you know, whatever happens from here, um, nobody has a crystal ball, which is why we track this week after week after week. So whatever comes from here, we'll be tracking it together. And I look forward to seeing you here next week, John.
2: Yeah, very much look forward to it, Adam. We're uh, keeping our eyes on the ball and we'll continue to do so. Thank you.
0: All right. And for everybody watching, thanks so much for watching this video. Look forward to seeing you next week as well. Take care, everyone. If you'd like to schedule a consultation with one of the financial advisors at New Harbor Financial, simply go to WealthyOn.com. These consultations are completely free and there are no strings attached. The good folks at New Harbor will simply answer any questions you have about your investment goals or your portfolio and give you their best advice given their latest market outlook. They're willing to do this because they care about protecting people's wealth and because Wealthion has connected them with so many thoughtful investors just like you over the past decade. We started doing this because so many people have approached us in frustration, looking for a solution because they're feeling out of alignment or downright ridiculed by the standard financial advisors who have been managing their money. You know the type, the kind that just pushes all of your money into the market, scoffs at the idea of owning gold. And when you bring up concerns about the market's sky-high valuations, they say, don't worry, the market will always take care of you. For many of the reasons discussed in today's video, We think this is one of the most challenging and treacherous times in history for investing. We strongly believe that today's investors are best served working in partnership with a conscientious professional financial advisor who understands the risks in play. Now we're agnostic which professional advisor you work with as long as they're good. If you're already working with one, that's fantastic. Stick with them. But if you don't, or are having trouble finding one you respect or trust, then consider talking to John and Mike and the team at New Harbor. Now, for those about to ask, yes, there's a business relationship between Wealthion and New Harbor, which we've put in place to make sure everything is handled according to SEC regulations. All the details on this are clearly provided on the Wealthion.com website. Also, it's important to note that New Harbor is able to work with U.S. citizens, green card holders, and those with existing assets in the USA. But for regulatory reasons, they aren't able to take on non-U.S. clients. All right. With all that said, if you'd like some insight and guidance on how to protect your wealth during this unprecedented time in the markets, go to Wealthion.com to schedule your free consultation with the good folks at New Harbor. Thanks for watching.